Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring a religion that I suspect most of our viewers have never even heard of, Mithraism. And yet, I think it's fair to say it's one of the most influential of world religions that have never been heard of. With me is Jason Reza Jarjani. Jason is the author of several books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. Uh, I suppose for those of our viewers who have heard of Mithraism, they probably know that it was very influential at the time of the Roman Empire, and probably very little more than that. But let's let's go over some of the ways in which Mithraism actually yeah, has an influence in our lives today. Well, it's true. Most people have probably heard of Mithraism in the context of Christianity, if they've heard of it at all. And in fact, many of the rituals still practiced by Christians today, particularly in the Roman church, are Mithraic in origin. So, for example, uh, in the communion, in the Holy Communion, the um, wafers are based on loaves of bread that were inscribed by a cross in the Mithraic communion ceremony that was performed in subterranean Mithraic temples. And um, we'll talk uh, in, in a little while about what the meaning of that cross symbol is. But they did have these loaves of bread inscribed with a cross, and they also drank wine at these Mithraic communion banquets. And the wine was laced with Amanita muscaria mushrooms, which were intended to produce a kind of out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. The um, cross that uh, Catholics um, put on their foreheads, the ashen cross that they uh, wear on Ash Wednesday, also comes from Mithraism. It was part of the initiation rite of the grade of the soldier. So there are seven grades of initiation in Mithraism. And uh, in the initiation ceremony for the grade of the soldier, the initiate had an ashen cross put on his head. And um, they would also uh, place a crown on the soldier initiate's head, and he would throw the crown off and say that my crown is my Lord. And the idea of being a soldier of Christ comes from this initiation, right? The most important uh, Christian ritual, namely the ceremony for the birth of Christ on December 24th into 25th, was originally a Mithraic ceremony. As best as we have any historical understanding of uh, when Jesus of Nazareth may have been born, that would have been in the spring, uh, not in the winter. But the Mithraists celebrated the birth of Mithra from a virgin mother on the night of December 24th into the morning of December 25th. And there are other symbols associated with Christmas that uh, are Mithraic as well. For example, the evergreen tree, um, or sarv in, in uh, Iranian culture, is a Mith Mithraic symbol. Mithra was associated with greenery and, and life. And um, uh, in the uh, Mithraic religion, there are three colors that are particularly important that wind up as the tricolor uh, flag schemes 
for all of the countries that were at one point part of the Iranian world and that were touched by Mithraism. And that's the, the green, white, and red color scheme, which you see every season at Christmas. Uh, this was originally a color scheme that stood for the three major castes of ancient Iranian society. The farmers or producers, green, uh, red symbolizing the soldier class for, of course, blood and fire, and then white as the color of the royals. And you see this on the flags of um, uh, Iran itself, of course, and then Tajikistan, which is a Persian-speaking country to this day, and among the Kurds in northern Iraq. Actually, the Kurdish variant has the sun right in the middle of it. Uh, and then in Bulgaria as well. And, you know, our viewers might not realize that Bulgaria was an Iranian country in its early history and, and actually for much of its uh, ancient history. It was um, really the, the bastion of the Sarmatian branch of the Iranian family. And I think that the green, white, and red of the Italian flag also comes from the predominance of Mithraism in the Roman Empire. So this color scheme you see at Christmas every year is also... Um, Mithraic in origin, and, you know, Santa Claus, uh, that, who pervades our popular culture, is a peculiar um, persistence of Mithraic imagery. First of all, his hat, which is also the Smurf hat, uh, is the Phrygian cap that was worn by Mithra in depictions of Mithra and by the Mithraic priests. It, that hat, the Phrygian cap, uh, this, that's a Santa Claus, proverbial Santa Claus hat, was also the basis for the meter of the bishops of the Catholic Church. And then the um, clothes that, uh, you know, uh, that, that the Santa Claus figure wears is based on a Scythian uh, riding outfit. Uh, Iranians invented pants. You don't see that in, in Greco-Roman culture. Um, pants were invented as a, a kind of clothing that allowed for easy horseback riding together with the boots and then this jacket bound by a belt uh, and then again, red is a, a color, you know, associated with, with Mithra, uh, because of, of Mithra's, um, uh, being symbolized by fire. Mm -hmm. So all of this, uh, Christian symbolism that we're surrounded by to this day is Mithraic in origin. Mm -hmm. Well, it strikes me from what little I know that Mithra might have e evolved out of the ancient mother goddess. There's some ambiguity even as to whether Mithra is a god or a goddess. So uh, it could be one of the most ancient of deities. Yes, and um, a very prominent symbol that highlights that uh, is the Statue of Liberty. So it is true that the Greeks who are writing about Mithraic Iranians occasionally make peculiar references to Mithra as a goddess rather than a god. And to this day in the Persian language, Mitra is a feminine name. It's a name used exclusively for women. So um, it's possible that the consort and mother of Mithra, a goddess by the name of Anahita, uh, who becomes Artemis in the Sarmatian branch of the Iranian culture. This, and who's worshipped as the, the mother of all the Gorgons by the Scythian branch of the Iranians. It's possible that this goddess figure was split off of a more primordial image of Mithra that was at least androgynous, if not feminine. Mm. And many of the depictions of, well, most of the depictions of Mithra are very effeminate. Although Mithra is a very forceful character, uh, and his features are, are, are very effeminate, and um, what's particularly interesting is that in the second grade of initiation in Mithraism, the grade of Nymphus, the initiate 
basically had to become a transvestite, had to, to embody the goddess. And so the initiate would dress as a woman and wear a crescent diadem. If you look at the Statue of Liberty carefully, you'll see that in her hair is a crescent. And from the crescent are emerging solar rays. Mithra's head was haloed by solar rays. And in the uh, grade of initiation known as the Solar Charioteer, uh, which is the penultimate grade of initiation in Mithraism, the symbols associated with, with that uh, ceremony are the oil lamp and the torch. So the Statue of Liberty, which was designed by a Freemason, Bartholdi was a Freemason, and as a Freemason, an inheritor of a lot of Mithraic esoteric symbolism, the Statue of Liberty appears to be Mithra, uh, symbolized in the uh, the imagery of the grade of Nymphus and the grade of Heliodromus, or the solar charioteer. Fascinating. And uh, I suppose another important uh, historical landmark is that uh, the whole Roman army nearly uh, became converted to Mithraism. I, I mean, throughout uh, the area that was once occupied by Rome are Mithraic temples that, that were uh, built, I gather, uh, by the army. Yes, and two of the most significant military, uh, you could say, rituals and symbols to this day are Mithraic in origin. One is the military salute. This salute is Iranian and Mithraic in origin. And what it originally symbolizes is shielding your eyes from the glory of the king or the military commander who's haloed by the sun like Mithra. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, I shield my eyes from your solar glory. That's the origin of the military salute and it's Mithraic. And the other is the fasces, which in the Roman Empire was carried in military processions. And you see this image, um, in uh, carvings of Mithra on rock cliffs and so forth in Iran, particularly in investiture scenes, scenes where a king is being crowned. You see Mithra holding a bundle of sticks, which in Persian is called the barsum. And the barsum basically symbolizes unity and strength, the idea being that a single twig can be broken, but a bundle of twigs is unbreakable. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another military symbol that you know comes from Mithraism. You, you know, just parenthetically, I might mention William James and the early psychical researchers used that very same analogy to point to the research in psychical research and today parapsychology, meaning that, yes, a critic can come and tear apart any little piece of evidence, but like a bundle of sticks, when you look at all the evidence put together, it's unbreakable. That's an interesting symbol. I think he, he would have met with a lot more controversy had he used that symbol today rather than in his own time. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I gather that the institution of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire by the Emperor Constantine uh, may have occurred, and I think we've discussed this in a previous uh, conversation we had, may have occurred because Constantine himself was very concerned about the uh, Roman Empire being uh, overcome by this Persian religion. Yes, in fact, the Roman authors... Oh consistently referred to Mithraism as the Persian religion, mm -hmm. and they saw it spread in Rome as infiltration. Mm -hmm. um, Mithridates I, the Parthian emperor Mithridates I, created a black ops navy based in Cilicia, uh, which is on the um, eastern Mediterranean coast. And uh, 
He used this black ops navy to try to overcome the Romans in the Mediterranean Sea,、mm-hmm. and they established ties with the aristocratic houses in the port cities of the Roman Empire. And this was the major conduit whereby Mithraism was spread from Parthian Iran into. The Roman Empire, about 150 BC, as I recall. That's right, about beginning in about 150 BC,、um, and these pirates were so powerful that at one point they even captured Julius Caesar on the high seas, and、uh, he was returned for a very large ransom.、Um, they flew for the first time in history the black flag bearing the skull and crossed bones, and the skull and the crossed bones is yet another Mithraic symbol that we're surrounded by today. Uh, that people、uh, are, you know, unaware of its actual origin and meaning.、Mm-hmm. The crossed bones are supposed to be separated by 23 degrees, and what they symbolize is the celestial equator being crossed by the、uh, ecliptic of the zodiac. The meaning of that is that、um, Mithra, who was identified with Perseus in the Parthian period. Overcomes the Lord of Time and Fate,、uh, the Lord that the Greeks call Kronos, and that in the Iranian tradition is known as Zurvan. This is the God who designs the celestial sphere and who who governs our world through the agency of the twelve constellations and the seven planets. So our our lives are. Determined by these fatalistic stellar influences, and、um, in the Mithraism of the Parthian period, you have the imagery of Mithra or Perseus tilting the celestial sphere off its axis,、uh, which causes a transition between the age of、um, Taurus and the age of Aries. So this is a period around about 150 BC where the precession of the equinoxes has been discovered, and it's being used by Mithras as a symbol for overcoming fate and reclaiming, you know, human free will and self-determination.、Mm-hmm. So the crossed bones and the symbol of the cr- skull and crossbones、uh, represents this mystery of precession and of, of the.、Uh, Overcoming of the god of the celestial sphere, who is the skull in the skull and the crossbones, namely the god of time and death,、mm-hmm. uh, meant to suggest that this realm, this realm of the、uh, zodiac and the celestial equator, the world that we live in, is a realm of、uh, fatality,、mm-hmm. of, of fatalism, and of mortality, and that our、uh, quest should be to overcome that through. A series of initiatic practices that lead to a higher consciousness. In, in other words, when you say the procession of the equinoxes, we're talking about really the changing of the age from the age of Taurus to the age of Aries to the age of Pisces. That's right. And、um, this、uh, skull and、uh, crossbone symbol is also commonly associated with poison. That has to do with Mithraism as well.、Uh, Mithridates the fourth. Came to be known as the Poison King because he was such an expert in concocting poisons to use against his various enemies. He was、uh, famous for dealing with his enemies by means of assassination, and so、uh, I don't think it's、uh, you know accidental. I don't think it's a coincidence that the、um, skull and the crossbones, which was first flown by the Mithraic pirates in the Mediterranean, winds up on poison bottles、um, when you know. The most famous u- user of poison as a means of assassination in the ancient、mm-hmm. world is a king whose name means given by Mithra or Mithra's justice. Yeah. Well, now you referred to Mithraism as the 
Persian religion, but you and I have done, I think, four previous interviews on Zoroaster and uh, the Zoroastrian religion, which I think many of our viewers will associate as the Persian religion. But Mithraism came first. Right. Mithraism is much older. Um, the earliest inscriptions that we have of uh, uh, Mithra, featuring Mithra's name are from about 1500 BC. And uh, Mitra was one of the oldest Vedic deities, together with Varuna and Indra. And uh, Mitra, unlike Indra, the king of the Devas, Mitra is an Ashura. He's one of the titans. And so um, the fact that Mitra becomes the predominant deity of the Iranians is relevant to this fracturing of the Indo-Iranian community, which was originally a single branch of the Aryan world. The Indo-Iranian community breaks up into two groups, namely the Iranians and the Indians, and the, in the Indians continue to worship Indra as the king of the gods, the king of the devas, whereas the Iranians uh, raise Mitra up to the, the position of the, their highest deity. Mm -hmm. So, um, for hundreds of years... Uh, you had Mithra worship in every one of the uh, ethnic subgroups of Iranians, you, among the Scythians, the Sarmatians, and the Medes. Mithraism was the predominant religion of the Median kingdom, the first Iranian kingdom. And, you know, the Medes rose to power by defeating the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And when they did that, they incorporated certain elements of Babylonian religion into their form of Mithraism, particularly the cults of Shamash and Nergal. Uh, Shamash is the famous winged disc, um, which, you know, this symbol here mm -hmm. that's commonly associated with Zoroastrianism today is originally a Mithraic adaptation of the Shamash symbol, mm. uh, which Mithraists used to signify the royal glory. So the symbol of the, the halo around the head of a king or of a prophet is a solar halo around the head of a king or prophet is also a Mithraic symbol of the legitimacy of um, divine kingly power. And it was believed that, you know, this royal glory can fly away from you. It can leave a king who, who begins to act in a, in a, uh, uh, an unrighteous or unjust fashion and, and loses his divine grace, as it were. So this um, flying solar disk is a symbol of the transferability of the divine royal glory. Um, and the other cult that was uh, absorbed into Mithraism in the Median period is the cult of Nergal, who is an underworld deity and who's depicted with serpents uh, rising up from his shoulders. Well, this is peculiar because the most demonic figure in the Iranian tradition, besides Ahriman himself, is the demon king Zahak in the, the Iranian national epic. And Zahak has serpents rising up from his shoulders. Mm. And, you know, Zahak, it said, feasted on human brains. The serpents that were growing from his shoulders feasted on human brains. Uh, and he had two cooks preparing these brains for him, um, and he's referred to as a black magician. So I think what this is really getting at is that this man, from a, you know, a retrospective Zoroastrian standpoint, was a black magician and a perverter of people's minds. I mean, these weren't literally serpents eating human brains. They were teachings being prepared by two different s scribes that were, um, from a Zoroastrian standpoint, misguiding people. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
you know, there's a connection here to the cult of Nergal and its absorption into Mithraism. In, uh, in the Iranian tradition, Zahak has his skull crushed by um, a hero, Feridun, who is wielding a bull-headed mace. Yes. And uh, the bull-headed mace was the scepter of Mithraic priests. So, you have a strange uh, uh, association of Mithra, both with the light and the darkness, both with the heroic figure that crushes Zahak's skull and with Zahak himself. And you have to wonder, when you, when you see this image of the bull-headed mace, whether actually the two serpents emerging from Zahak's shoulders around his spinal column aren't meant to symbolize the caduceus, mm. that this is in fact some kind of caduceus-wielding magician, a trickster figure in the ancient Iranian tradition. Which is also, I think, a symbol of the kundalini energy. Yes, and in it, later Parthian Mithraism, uh, in the kind of astrological Mithraism that we were just talking about with respect to the procession of the equinoxes and so forth, uh, there is... Um, there is the idea of um, of uh, the um, god of time and fate, who the Greeks call Kronos or the Iranians call Zorvan, being a a lion-headed, uh, gorgon-headed deity whose body is entwined by a serpent. Mm. So yet again, this Caduceus-like imagery. Reemerges in the in the mm-hmm. history of Mithraism, and Perseus is given his harpy sword, the sword with which he decapitates Medusa, uh, or the sword with which Mithra slays the bull as he looks away from the bull in in symbolism that echoes this, the decapitation of Medusa. This harpy sword is given to Perseus by Hermes, the wielder of the Caduceus. Mm. Very interesting. Well, I gather that uh, the rise of the Zoroastrian religion in, in Persia was something of a, um, I don't want to call it an antidote, uh, but a, a criticism. It was in opposition to Mithraism. Yes, and in the Iranian national epic, uh, one of the most famous stories that um, uh, Ferdosi writes into that book, into the Shahnameh, is the story of Rostam and Esfandiar. Rostam is a Scythian. He's, uh, he's living in a place uh, today called Sistan, in the old days called Sakastana, the realm of the Scythians. And his father is a Mithraic magician. His father, Zal, was raised by this mythical bird, the Seymour. And he, Zal, his fa- white-haired father, has certain shamanic rituals whereby he can summon the Seymour bird for aid. And this uh, figure, Esfandiar, is the son of the king who was Zarathustra's patron. So, the king who was Zarathustra's patron sends his son out into the world as a kind of crusader to convert Iran to Zoroastrianism. And Esfandiar boasts of his campaigns in Scythian Central Asia and in other parts of Iran, attempting to convert what were then Mithraists to Zoroastrianism. Rostam, who's the kind of Odysseus figure of the Iranian epic tradition, mm-hmm. is, a, is a mercenary who always serves the kings of Iran, but he refuses to serve this king who becomes the patron of Zarathustra. And so Esfandiar is sent to... Uh, to, to gain the submission of Rostam, 
or bring him back to the royal court in chains. And after an initial battle between the two of them in which Rostam is badly wounded, uh, Rostam goes back to his father Zal, and Zal, using this shamanic, Mithraic magic, summons the Seymour bird, who then teaches Rostam how to use magic um, to defeat uh, Esfandiar with a magical arrow. At any rate, and Esfandiar is successfully defeated. At any rate, the, the uh, significance of the story is that it reveals a religious conflict between the rising Zoroastrian faith and the older Mithraic religion that was still being steadfastly adhered to by the Scythian branch of the Iranian community. And it was looking at this story of Rostam and Esfandiar that made me reevaluate the date of Zarathustra. You know, I had been inclined to accept older dates for Zarathustra, but the traditional gate, uh, date given by Zoroastrian texts for, you know, the, the period in which the prophet preached it was around about you know, 600 to 650 BC. They say like 300 years before Alexander in the Zoroastrian scriptures. Um, uh, in the let, let's just say in the Avestan texts, that's the date that the Orthodox Zoroastrians accept. And I've come around to thinking that that's correct because the context for the story of Rostam and Esfandiar, the only historical context that fits, is when the Median kingdom. Uh, had expanded up to the border of, of the Scythian realm in Central Asia. And we're told that ultimately um, Zarathustra is killed in that area, right, where Iran borders Turkmenistan today. And so uh, I think that what we're seeing, you know, in the story of Rostam and Esfandiar is the beginning of the conversion of the Median kingdom to Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. and the use of Median power, which, which had been Mithraic, for the spread of Zoroastrianism and then a pushback by the Scythians who, you know, remain adherents of Mithraism. And it is these Scythians who, who doggedly adhere to Mithraism who come down after the Hellenistic period and establish the Parthian dynasty. The Parthians were a branch of the Scythians who broke off and came down into central Iran and liberated Iran from the Greek colonizers and established the second major uh, Iranian empire, the, the Parthian empire that became the rival of Rome, mm -hmm. whose religion explicitly was Mithraism. Mm -hmm. But I, I gather over the centuries, as uh, uh, by this time, uh, these two religions have become fused together. Well, there was an attempt on the part of the Zoroastrians to appropriate Mithra, uh, if you look at the uh, Mehr Yasht, the hymn to Mithra in the Avesta, you'll see Ahura Mazda make a very peculiar statement, namely, I created Mithra to be as worthy of reverence as myself. Mm. Well, I mean, why would any god make a statement like that? And if you read the Mehr Yasht, you see that all of the attributes of Mithra that are identified in that text are ones that are later associated with Ahura Mazda. So that the, the Mehr Yasht effectively renders Ahura Mazda superfluous. And, you know, uh, scholars who have analyzed this text have come to the conclusion that what's happened here is that an old Mithraic hymn has been rewritten and appropriated by Zoroastrians. And Mithra, uh, who was the, the, uh, most revered deity of the Iranians has been domesticated by Zoroastrianism as a, as a more minor god, as a Yazata. Now, the Mithraists did the same kind of thing with Zoroastrianism. After the rise of the cult of Ahura Mazda, the form of Mithraism that 
predominated in the Parthian period included the worship of Ahura Mazda. It's not as if it was a cult of Mithra to the exclusion of Ahura Mazda, but uh, Ahura Mazda was worshipped along with the evil deity Ahriman. Writers like Plutarch and Clement of Alexandria, who were witnesses to uh, Parthian Mithraism, say that certain of the Magi are quote-unquote devil worshippers, and that they basically carry out rites to propitiate evil forces. Mm -hmm. This makes sense because Mithra is the god of oaths, covenants, and contracts. Um, you know, I mean, our handshake uh, that, that we, you know, greet people with every day mm -hmm. is the Mithraic uh, initiation, uh, Mithraic, sorry, um, uh, sign of belonging to the Mithraic secret society. It's the way the brothers of a Mithraic secret society greeted one another. And the first instance of it that we have are from carvings in... Uh, uh, in um, uh, southern Anatolia from the Parthian period of King Antiochus shaking the hand of the god Mithra. So, uh, you know, the god of oaths and covenants and contracts also presided over the primordial contract between Ahura Mazda and Ahriman to divide their sovereignty over the world, with uh, each of them ruling the world in various successive ages. And Mithra is supposed to make sure that neither of these two opposed deities transgresses the limits of the contract. And therefore, he is a judge over and above good and evil. Uh, the Parthian period uh, texts refer to Mithra as a mionji or mediator between Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. Mm -hmm. So, uh, from a theological perspective, uh, even though these two religions have become fused, they're really very different. They are indeed. I would say that uh, Parthian Mithraism is a refutation of Zoroastrian dualism, both on a metaphysical level and on a moral level. Uh, what's going on in Parthian Mithraism is uh, an acknowledgement of the shadow side of the human psyche. And the various grades of Mithraic initiation were meant as an esoteric training program to be able to free oneself from baneful astral influences that will fatalistically control one's life if one remains unconscious of them. And, you know... The planets were seen as creations of Ahriman, by and large. They were not seen as positive forces in Mithraism. Uh, they were seen as baneful influences on human life. And going through this process of initiation was intended to uh, bring you to confront the shadows within your own psyche and to become psychically integrated and be able to attain a consciousness that's really beyond good and evil. Mm -hmm. So Frederick Nietzsche, you know, famously uses that that uh, axiom, beyond good and evil, as the title of one of his books, mm -hmm. and who has such a high uh, reverence for Zarathustra. I would say Frederick Nietzsche is really depicting a Zarathustra who has returned as a Mithraist, preaching a Mithraic message. Mm -hmm. Because basically, uh, the idea of Zoroastrian theology is that the uh, absolute God is Ahura Mazda, who is all good, like Jesus, completely good. And Ahriman, like Satan, is all bad. 
all good, perfectly pure. Um, we've discussed in, in, uh, you know, in other conversations we've had that whole classes of creatures were deemed demonic creations in, by Zoroastrians, mm-hmm. impure creatures that had to be exterminated from the world. Well, some of these very same creatures, like, for example, scorpions, serpents, are holy creatures in Mithraism. They're, they're one of, they're among the avatars of Mithra and they're depicted in that bull slaying scene. Mm-hmm. So, um, Mithraism is, uh, aiming for a much more integrated state of consciousness that is beyond, um, kind of dualistic black and white classifications of phenomena in this world and that attempts to, uh, integrate the shadow side of the human psyche rather than to suppress it. Now, the bull-slaying scene that you just referred to uh, is one that was found in all of the Mithraic temples erected by uh, the Roman army throughout Europe, actually. and uh, 420 of them, by the way. Yeah. No less than 420 Mithraea were found throughout the entire geographical extent of the Roman Empire from North Africa all the way to Britain. And they all contain this image of the god Mithra slaying the bull. That's right, which is a symbol of the yielding of the age of Taurus to the rise of the age of Aries. Mm -hmm. And now what's interesting about that is we talked about how much of Roman Catholic symbolism comes from Mithraism. Uh, By the time that Christianity was rising, by the time that Constantine um, uh, institutionalized Christianity, we're moving into the age of Pisces. And so... uh, I think that this Vesica Pisces symbol that's used by the early Christians was meant as a replacement for the bull slaying scene mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, this symbol that could could be a fish yeah. actually is the intersection of two spheres, mm-hmm. of two circles. And that's a symbol of the mediator. It's Mithra as the Mianji, as the, the mediator and an arbiter between the forces of good and evil. And you find Jesus say... You know, rather strange things in some of the, uh, some of the gospels make uh, esoteric statements to the effect of um, resist ye not evil uh, and love your enemies. And so there's the idea uh, in the gospels that one should integrate the dark side rather than exteriorize it and allow it to uh, conquer you from without. Mm-hmm. And there's also this idea, I guess, because Mithra uh, slays the bull and he stands outside of the changing of uh, the eras, That he, in, in, in other words, beyond fate, that we're no longer so constrained by fate if we can identify with Mithra. That's right. Mithra, or Perseus, uh, is seen as the cosmocrator, as the, the, the god who is outside the celestial sphere that has been formed by Zorvan or Kronos, the lord of time and fate. And he grabs the celestial sphere by what's called the wheel of Mithra, uh, the bear uh, constellations around the pole star, and tilts the entire celestial sphere um, which symbolizes the overcoming of the fatalistic order established by the Lord of Time. And in a way also, this, uh, by, by uh, shifting the astrological age and changing the shape of the heavens, this is the bringing into being of a new world order, because the earthly order is a microcosm of the macrocosm of the cosmic order. So this shifting of the heavens is also the bringing forth of a new world order. The main symbol of Mithraism has to do with this handle that 
Mithra uses when he stands outside the celestial sphere and tilts the heavens, the bare stars uh, revolving around the, the pole star form the swastika over the various periods of the year. And in uh, Iranian uh, culture, the main symbol of, of Mithraism is the swastika, which is known as Gardunaya Mehra, or the wheel of Mithra. Very interesting. So that's the origin of uh, the swastika. I believe so. Yeah. And, and it's also a symbol in Buddhism. Well, uh, we've, we've discussed the Iranian origins of Buddhism, and it, it's a symbol throughout India as well. But, you know, Mitra is one of the most ancient Indo-Iranian deities that also appears uh, as early as the Vedas. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, it would seem as, as if in the, in the uh, Achaemenid early Persian Empire, there, there's kind of a mixture where the, where the emperors might be nominally Zoroastrian, but they still retain many Mithraic practices, which were, in fact, explicitly contrary to the Zoroastrian teachings. Indeed, indeed. And on the way to addressing that, I'd like to say a few things about, about Achaemenid Mithraism. Yeah. But, uh, let me also take this as an opportunity to just say something more about Perseus as Mithra, because I mm-hmm. just mentioned this without yeah. really explaining the identification here. Uh, the Achaemenids, when they were at war with the Greeks, appealed to this myth that was later institutionalized by the Parthians. Mm-hmm. The myth that uh, Perseus fathered the Persian race, or the Iranian people, through his union with Andromeda. The son of Perseus by his wife Andromeda is Perseus, the patriarch of the Persian people. Mm -hmm. And it was believed that Perseus himself came down and established the order of the Magi, that he was sort of the the initiator of all of the magicians and brought the heavenly fire down to its hearth in the Mithraic fire temples, which, by the way, to this day, Zoroastrian temples are referred to as Dare Mehra, door of Mithra, or gate of Mithra. So that suggests that these, quote-unquote, Zoroastrian fire temples were actually Mithraic in origin. At any rate, the Achaemenids mm-hmm. used this myth of, of Perseus as the progenitor of the Persians to appeal to the Spartans and other Greeks to join their cause in the Persian wars. Mm-hmm. And, you know... In that uh, Persian expedition of Xerxes in this massive campaign to conquer Athens, um, Xerxes, at the very outset of the campaign, as he's marching his vast army into Europe, carries out a human sacrifice of nine boys and nine maidens, which is something no Zoroastrian would ever do. Uh, but it is something that you might have found in the underworld cult of Nergal, the Babylonian underworld cult yes. of Nergal, which was fused with Mithraism in the Median period. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that Cyrus the Great wasn't only a Persian, he was by maternal descent a Mede. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his uh, um, you know, cultural inculcation was from the Median court. And there's not a trace of evidence for Cyrus having been a Zoroastrian. But there's a good deal of evidence that Cyrus was a Mithraist, For example, uh, there is a horse sacrifice performed at the tomb of Cyrus the Great after he dies on on, uh, a monthly basis. They sacrifice horses that, you know, they immolate them. They they, uh, burn horses in in bonfires. And 
Again, no Zoroastrian would ever do this. Animal sacrifices in general are prohibited by Zoroastrians, and horses were considered um, animals that should be particularly well-treated, together with dogs. So uh, no Zoroastrian king would put it in his will to have a, a Mithraic horse sacrifice carried out uh, at his tomb. Let me mention also that when Cyrus carries out that, I'm sorry, when Xerxes carries out that human sacrifice on his way marching into Europe, he carries out a horse sacrifice at the same time. Mm. So the fact that this identifiably Mithraic horse sacrifice was carried out in conjunction with the human sacrifice says to me that Xerxes, who's widely taken to be a Zoroastrian zealot, was actually a Mithraist of some kind. Uh, but to go back to Cyrus, Besides the horse sacrifices carried out at his tomb on a monthly basis, there is a, a symbol inscribed on Cyrus's tomb, and it's the only symbol on the tomb. Cyrus's tomb is a is a, uh, a titanic stone structure that doesn't have any uh, engraving on it, other than a single solar lotus, and this solar lotus is uh, seen on other rock carvings in Iran underneath the feet of Mithra. Mithra is standing on or emerging from out of the solar lotus. So it appears that this was a Mithraic symbol, which, again, Cyrus had put on his tomb. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose in the history of religions, it is the case that as a a religion develops its own orthodoxy, it uh, uh, rewrites its own history. And uh, I gather that just as uh, you wouldn't find in the writings of Christian theologians all the references to the Mithraic influences on Christianity, you don't find them so much in Orthodox Zoroastrian teachings. That's right. That's right. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that that Zoroastrian Orthodoxy had not yet developed in the Achaemenid period. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the majority of, of, of festivals that were performed in the Achaemenid period, as best we can judge from the tablets at Persepolis, were festivals dedicated dedicated to Mithra, especially Mithrakana or Mehragan, the Mehragan festival of the autumn equinox, which is celebrated to this day in Iran, was a huge festival in Achaemenid Iran. The majority of the names that we find from the Achaemenid period have Mithra in them, uh, names like uh, Mithridates, for mm-hmm. example. More names include Mithra than include Mazda. Uh, so, And then, you know, there's imagery at Persepolis, like, for example, the lion attacking the bull which is very Mithraic, uh, the lion having been associated with um, with Mithra. One of the grades of Mithraic initiation is the grade of Leo. Mm-hmm. And the bull, of course, the bull sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then there's a an image of a, a king fighting with a, a, a chimera creature, which looks very much like later Parthian depictions of Zurvan, the god of time and fate, who uh, Mithraists saw as the androgynous progenitor of both Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. Mm. So this this idea of a Mithra in combat with the Lord of Time and Fate may be as old as the Achaemenid period and may be seen in some of these uh, wall carvings at Persepolis. Mm -hmm. So I suppose it's fair to say that uh, Mithra is a a deity regarded as a supreme deity. Uh, There's almost a monotheistic sense in in Mithraism, but it is a deity who embodies, unlike the deities of uh, Zoroastrianism, both light and dark qualities within 
the same deity. That's right. I don't know to what extent in the earliest period it was monotheistic. I mean, uh, Mithras worshipped many other uh, minor deities. Mithra was uh, the greatest among a number of deities. But later in the Parthian period, I do think uh, your description is accurate, that these uh, Parthian magi were very philosophically minded, and what they were trying to develop was a, a um, monistic, unitarian mode of, of thinking and spirituality that would reconcile the kind of moral and metaphysical dualism that we see in Zoroastrianism. And, you know, this is inseparable from the idea of overcoming fatalism uh, because, you know, exteriorizing the dark side of the human psyche um, fighting evil as if it's a an independent force outside of yourself is also actually not a, it's not an also a form of fatalism. It's the worst form of fatalism. Uh, so overcoming fatalism and, and reclaiming your free will and human self determination is the same thing as being able to integrate the shadow side of the human psyche. And I think that was really the esoteric project of Mithraism, and it's also why Mithraism had to function um, through secret societies, because this is a, a very dangerous project to be engaged in. Mm -hmm. Now, in an earlier interview on Iranian Zionism, we talked about the role of the Achaemenid uh, Dynast dynastic emperors uh, in uh, restoring the temple in Jerusalem and uh, working with Ezra to create the Jewish canon, and which literally changed the uh, Israelite religion. By the way, the treasurer who was presiding over the payment for that project from out of the Iranian royal treasury was named Mithridates. Mm -hmm. Well, so there seems to be a, a relationship between... Uh, the monotheistic aspects of uh, Mithraism and the monotheistic mono aspects of uh, the Israelite religion, later uh, what we now know of as Judaism, uh, to the idea of world conquest, the idea of a, a global uh, empire, a new world order, in effect. Yes, I think that if the Achaemenids had been orthodox Zoroastrians, uh, they would never have um, supported the Jewish community and engaged in the, the Zionist project of reconstructing Israel because they would have seen in ancient Israelite religion what they classify as Ahrimanic uh, qualities in the deity Yahweh. Mm -hmm. But a Mithraism that already in the Median period has incorporated the underworld cult of Nergal is a religion uh, or spiritual outlook far more amenable to taking elements of ancient Israelite religion and adapting them in a way that crafts a monotheism that integrates uh, the shadow side of the human psyche into a kind of uh, program for the uh, cultivation of higher consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, while we can identify, it, it seems to me at least, as... as a Jewish person. There's a relationship uh, between Yahweh and Mithra and that they both, they contain uh, light and dark within the same deity. Uh, there's also a relationship between Mithraism, as we pointed out earlier, and Christianity. Well, uh, almost every single um, uh, aspect of Judaism that was shaped under Achaemenid influence 
are are the the very same elements of Judaism that are retained by Christianity. Mm-hmm. So you know the belief in in an afterlife, uh, the judgment of the individual soul, um, the the coming judgment at the end of the world, the idea that history tends toward a point of culmination. Uh, all of these ideas are imported from Judaism into Christianity. And when you consider that together with how much of Mithraic symbolism was brought into the Roman Catholic Church, right, from the background of Roman Mm -hmm. culture when Constantine institutionalized Christianity, you have to come to the conclusion that Christianity is something like 80% Iranian. Between the influence that the Iranians had on Judaism and the elements of Judaism incorporated into Christianity, and then the amount of Mithraic rituals and symbolism that were institutionalized by the Roman Church, Christianity is an almost entirely Iranian phenomenon. And uh, we should also point out the fact that when Constantine institutionalized Christianity around about 320, Mithraism was almost on the verge of becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. We know that because Julian the Apostate the Caesar after Constantine attempted to reverse Constantine's decision and as a Mithraist institutionalized Mithraism as the religion of the empire. Although he failed and he was branded as a heretic by the Catholic Church, the fact that he would make this attempt at all showed that he had a huge popular support base across the empire to even attempt to institutionalize Mithraism. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't you say that the, the distinction of the Godhead, the division of the Godhead into uh, all good, uh, the God of light, Ahura Mazda, and all evil, the uh, demon, Ariman, is uh, very much akin to the uh, division of the uh, Christian Godhead into Christ and Satan. It depends what form of Christianity you're looking at. Because, you know, there were um, uh, there were Gnostic forms of Christianity like Valentinian Gnosticism that uh, saw beyond that duality and uh, argued on the basis of sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, like resist ye not evil, for example, Mm -hmm. um, that the the point was to be able to overcome this dualism. And they saw Christ as a mediating figure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all the way throughout Christian history, you still have that uh, viewpoint being pursued by esoteric societies like, for example, the Rosicrucians. Yeah, and, and I know uh, Orthodox Christianity does not consider Satan officially part of the Godhead. Indeed, indeed. But I think that the, the most important point is that in Mithraism, the Satanic or the Aramanic is indeed seen as part of the Godhead. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, that means that in ancient Iran, for a very long time, a religious tradition was dominant that was quite distinct from Zoroastrianism and maybe even radically at odds with it. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason, Reza, Georgiani, once again, this has been a whirlwind of uh, interesting ideas. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jeffrey. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.